0: This is Shakespeare on Bard, the podcast where I try to get you excited about Shakespeare, one play at a time. Today, one of Shakespeare's greatest works and an underrated masterpiece, it's Richard II.
1: We were not born to sue, but to command. Which since we cannot do to make you friends, be ready as your lives shall answer it at Coventry upon St. Lambert's Day.
2: What is thy name? And wherefore comest thou hither before King Richard in his royal lists? Harry of Hereford, Lancaster, and Derby am I, who ready here to stand in arms? This royal throne of kings, this sceptred isle, this earth of majesty, this seat of Mars. Are you contented to resign the crown? I. No.
1: No I, for I must nothing be. I hardly yet have learned to insinuate, flatter, bow, bend my limbs, give sorrow leave a while to tutor me to this submission.
2: This other Eden, demi-paradise, this fortress built by nature for herself against infection in the hand of war, this happy breed of men, this little world, this precious stone set in the silver sea. I
1: have forgot myself. Am I not king? Wake, thou coward majesty, thou sleepest. Is not the king's name twenty thousand names?
0: Alright, as always, we're gonna start off with a short summary of the play. How short? This is Richard II. In one minute. Let's start the timer. Go. All is rotten in the state of England. Richard II is on the throne, but not everyone is happy about it, especially Henry Bolingbroke, who is Richard's cousin and, depending on who you talk to, possibly another heir to the throne. Bolingbroke is exiled for a spat with Thomas Mowbray that may have involved treason. When Bolingbroke's father dies, Richard seizes his property, denying Bolingbroke his inheritance and using the money to finance his wars with Ireland. While Richard is off with his army, Bolingbroke returns, meets with supporters, and they stage a coup. Richard returns, finds the country in rebellion, tries to stop it, fails, and rather than wage a Bloody war agrees to surrender the crown. He's imprisoned in the tower while Bolingbroke is crowned Henry IV. A little more treason occurs among the nobles as people choose sides, leading to Bolingbroke's declaration that life would be easier for his life as a new king if the old king wasn't imprisoned in the tower. Taking this as an order, one of the nobles heads up to the tower where Richard II is in the midst of giving a very long soliloquy on the nature of power. He's murdered with an axe, and Henry IV, horrified by what has happened, vows to head to Jerusalem on a holy quest to purify his soul. Richard II is one of Shakespeare's greatest works, and if you put it in the Colosseum with King Lear or Richard III, the odds would be pretty even about which of them would win. Told without a single line of prose, Richard II has an unrelenting lyricism with a story couched in a unique construction that Shakespeare rarely repeated in other works. This is the most striking thing about the play, its complete lack of what would become Shakespeare's standard dramatic tools. The play's plot takes us backstage to a coup d'etat that, while not exactly bloodless, doesn't have the thrill of some decisive battle that ends with a king lying dead in the field. There are no large battle scenes or grand resolves, and where other tragedies end with a stage of blood and corpses, this one has only a simple coffin left lying at center stage. Perhaps we can thank Shakespeare's earlier plays for this. After Titus Adronicus, he probably had his fill of corpses, after all those plays about Henry VI, He might have had his fill of battles, too. The unique construction of Richard II is its greatest challenge, and most likely the reason why lesser mortals prefer the easier drama of Shakespeare's later work. Richard III and Hamlet are easy to discern. Both are men out for revenge. Both are the heroes of their play, but who is the hero of Richard II? The usurping Bolingbroke, or the ineffectual king who steals a dead man's estate to fuel his Irish wars? For most of the play, Shakespeare does not permit us an inward glance into either of these figures, keeping us at arm's length so that when the rebellion occurs, we are uncertain if it is good or bad. We can only guess as to whether this was Shakespeare's intent. As Queen Elizabeth was descended from the Bolingbroke line, the bard would have had to be careful in how he presented the story of her ancestor who, to use Henry V's words, quote, compassed the crown. End quote. It would have been expedient to paint Richard II as a villain, much as he did with Richard III, but this time around, Shakespeare seems to have chosen the harder path. From the moment Bolingbroke seizes his power, Richard becomes much more sympathetic and more human. He is the play's central character, but it takes time for us to care about him. In a way, this echoes the progress of history. At first, he was overthrown. Years later, his descendants began to claim that the crown was always rightfully his. The play went through several publications, always without the deposition scene, which is unfortunate because it's the best scene in the play. The play suffers without this scene. It's the one where Richard truly gains our sympathies, and this may explain why the play has struggled to achieve notoriety. How are we to care for Richard if you excise this speech, spoken as he stands in front of a court of nobles and gives up the crown?
1: Mark me how I will undo myself. I give this heavy weight from off my head and this unwieldy sceptre from my hand. Pride of kingly sway from out my heart. With mine own tears I wash away my balm. With mine own hands I give away my crown. With mine own tongue deny my sacred state. With mine own breath release all duties rights. All pomp and majesty I do forswear. My manners, rents, revenues I forego. My acts, decrees, and statutes I deny. God, pardon all oaths that are broke to me. God, keep all vows unbroke that swear to thee. Make me that nothing have with nothing grieved. And thou, with all pleased, that hast all achieved. Long mayest thou live in Richard's seat to sit, and soon Lie, Richard, in an earthy pit. God save King Harry!
0: Back in the 1940s in Vichy France, a production of Antigone in a new version by Jean Ennui was staged. A play about a girl who defies a king, the play was seen as an ode to rebellion for the resistance and an ode to authority for the Nazis. The play was ambiguous enough that audiences could decide what they liked. A similar ambiguity is alive and well in Richard II, which was famously connected to the rebellion led by the Earl of Essex in 1601. The perpetrators commissioned a performance of the play right before the rebellion. Later, Queen Elizabeth commissioned a performance the day before Essex was executed. There's a pleasing symmetry to this, and seems to demonstrate that the play had its use as propaganda. Shakespeare, as Jean-Henouy would do centuries later, expertly played both sides. Richard II is either about a man who loses the crown to an unworthy usurper, or a king who loses his crown because he himself isn't worthy to wear it. Audiences today appreciate the clean heroism of a Hamlet or a Viola shipwrecked on Illyria's shores, but Richard shipwrecks himself. His journey is not one of redemption, he is no Edmund, recanting his sins as he dies on a sword. In fact, Richard never apologizes at all for any of his sins, if indeed he thinks he has any. Yet still we come to care for Richard, who descends from the throne even as he ascends towards our affections. Bolingbroke, meanwhile, moves from the hot-headed Harry of Hereford into the noble king. Both journeys have dramatic appeal. The man who becomes king, the king who becomes a man. And this makes it hard for an audience to hate one man and root for the other. Here, then, is the superior strength of the play. Shakespeare erases all the comfortable pretense that our leaders fall easily into the notions of good and bad. We have long been uncomfortable with these ideas, of course. Even today, our leaders are painted either as apostles or demons. The notion of a middle ground is rarely discussed. Compromise is a dirty word in modern politics, and it seems to have been a similar thing in Shakespeare's day, which is what makes Richard II such a daring work. It dared to suggest that there could be eloquence in surrender, and that appeasement need not always be a terrible thing. My experience is that the play is more popular in England than in North America. I'm in Canada, and the Stratford Shakespeare Festival, which is one of Canada's premier Shakespeare festivals, hasn't produced a production of Richard II since 1999. The closest we got was an adaptation that combined the play with Henry IV Part I during the 2016 season. Now, I attempted the same adaptation during my playwriting youth, and there is a certain logic to it. Since Richard II is the prequel to Henry IV, many of the events introduced in the play's final acts resolve in Henry IV, but I have since come to the conclusion that to combine the plays is to do them a disservice. They really deserve to stand on their own. Richard II and Henry IV Part I are two of Shakespeare's crowning achievements, no pun intended, and they each deserve their moment in the sun. But even i have to admit that the modern audience might get lost trying to understand the setup to richard ii after my own first viewing i had to run to the internet looking for one or two answers shakespeare starts in the middle of the action as he usually does but in this case he may have overshot the mark the trouble with starting stories in Medea's res is that sometimes you go too far and start too late in the day imagine if the fourth harry potter book had been the first one or if you happen to read the return of the king before reading anything that came before And yet at the same time, from a thematic standpoint, there's really no better place to begin. This is a play about Richard and Bolingbroke, and there they are right at the start of scene one. They are clearly delineated, two cousins who were devoted friends, but who are now falling down on opposite sides of a political question. As we begin Richard II, Bolingbroke and Thomas Mowbray have each accused the other of treason. The backstory to this is one that would have been familiar to Elizabethan audiences. Edward IV had too many sons, who in turn had too many kids, and now anyone who has even a drop of that sacred blood is vying for the crown. Richard II is the first play in the eight-play saga that will end with Richard III. This is the true beginning, then, to the War of the Roses, and so in opening the play with Richard and Bolingbroke, Shakespeare is introducing us to the two branches that will tear a kingdom apart. Writers are often told to show character rather than talk about it. In other words, it's stronger to demonstrate Richard's unsuitability than to have a character say Richard is unsuitable. Shakespeare takes this writerly advice to heart. Right from the start, Richard is clearly enamored not with his kingdom, but rather with the pomp and circumstance that go with the crown. Much later, when he is finally deposed, Richard implies that he does not believe the ritual honorings of royalty can ever be separated from ruling.
3: What must the king do now? Must he submit? The king shall do it. Must he be deposed? The king shall be contented. Must he lose the name of king? A god's name, let it go. I'll give my jewels for a set of beads. My gorgeous palace for a hermitage. My gay apparel for an armsman's gown. My figured goblets for a dish of wood. My scepter for a palmer's walking staff. My subjects for a pair of carved saints. And my large kingdom for a little grave.
0: His jewels, his palace, his goblets, his scepter, his large kingdom. This is what Richard cares about. He does not, it seems, care much for the actual business of being a king. And indeed, Shakespeare suggests that this is what makes him rather ineffectual. When the play starts, Richard is dealing with a delicate political issue, but rather than deal with the question of whether his cousin has committed treason in private, Richard hauls Bolingbroke and Thomas Mowbray before the entire court. He strides onto stage, always demanding of the flattery that comes with being king. Knowing this, both Bolingbroke and Mowbray nearly trample each other in the hopes of being the first to spit out a few honeyed words. Bolingbroke takes the lead here, as he will throughout the scene.
2: Many years of happy days before my gracious sovereign, my most loving liege. Each day still better, others' happiness, until the heavens envying Earth's good hap add an immortal title to your crown.
0: One of the ways Shakespeare demonstrates the character of a king is by demonstrating how people talk to that king. In Love's Labour's Lost, the king's friends are amiable and friendly with him. In King Lear, everyone gets more and more disrespectful as Lear loses his power over the world. In Richard II, flattery is the order of the day for all of Richard's supporters. And in scene one, when Bolingbroke and Thomas Mowbray are fighting for their lives, they remember that the best way to this particular king's heart is through his vanity.
2: First, heaven be the record to my speech, in the devotion of a subject's love, tendering the precious safety of my prince, and free from other misbegotten hate, come I appellant to this princely presence.
0: Both Bolingbroke and Mowbray make certain to demonstrate the custom of throwing their gauge and agree to a duel in order to have their honor restored. All of this delights the pompous Richard who will play ringmaster at the duel and, in the name of ceremony, order the marshal to, quote, demand of yonder champion the cause of his arrival here in arms, end quote. Keep in mind that everybody already knows the cause of his arrival in arms because everyone was there in the previous scene. Richard stops the duel before it starts, of course, and changes his mind, demonstrating a capricious attitude. He does not have the courage of his own convictions. He tells Thomas Mowbray, quote, it boots thee not to be compassionate, yet moments later he takes pity on Bolingbroke, his childhood friend, and reduces his sentence from six years of exile to four. Richard also has them swear, quote, by the duty you owe to God, and quote, that the two never embrace each other's love and banishment. Here is a fool's moment that demonstrates Richard's faith in chivalry's code. In his mind, an oath is all that is needed to ensure a rebellion is implanted from afar. And so in just two scenes, Shakespeare has shown that Richard is vain, haughty, unpredictable, and more than a little naive. Next, he will show that he is also cruel when, upon hearing that Bolingbroke's father, old John of Gaunt, has fallen ill, he immediately plans how he himself may benefit.
1: Now put it, God, in the physician's mind to help him to his grave immediately. The lining of his coffers shall make coats to deck our soldiers for these Irish wars. Come, gentlemen, let's all go visit him. Pray God we may make haste and come too late. <laughs> Amen.
0: God answers Richard's prayer, and the king proceeds to perform both a eulogy and theft in virtually the same breath. From here, Richard will disappear, not returning again until his kingdom is in disarray. His reaction to finding out about the rebellion isn't to rally the troops, and perhaps this is the most striking reason why he fails. When confronted with the truth, Richard's response is to sit down and tell the sad story of the death of kings.
1: Let's talk of graves of worms and epitaphs. Make dust our paper, and with rainy eyes write sorrow on the bosom of the earth. Let's choose executors and talk of wills. And yet not so, for what can we bequeath save our deposed bodies to the ground? Our lands, our lives, and all are Bolingbrooks? And nothing can we call our own but death and that small model of the barren earth which serves as paste and cover to our bones. For God's sake, let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the death of kings.
0: Richard defeats himself. Having never had to fight for the crown, he doesn't know where to begin. This speech is also the first bit of introspection, as Richard begins to realize what it is he is about to lose. His journey to Ireland then has just been the start of a very long journey, both for Richard and for us, for by the time he has returned from Ireland, the prologue to the War of the Roses has begun. Harold Bloom wrote, quote, no one could like the usurper Bolingbroke, end quote, but this is belied by the facts of the play. Just as Shakespeare uses the first scenes to show why Richard is such a bad king, Bolingbroke's first scene suggests that he will be the hero of the day. Out of loyalty, he has come forward to reveal Thomas Mowbray's treachery and for the trouble he is both banished and usurped of his inheritance. At once, he is our fairy tale hero. He is Hamlet, denied the right to his crown. He is Rosalind, exiled on pain of death. Contrasted against the petulant Thomas Mowbray, he cannot help but strike us as sincere, much as Lear's Cordelia endears herself to us by virtue of her contrast to Regan and Gonril. Faced with treason, Mowbray becomes an oily worm, but Bolingbroke is self-assured, throwing down his gauge only after he is slandered. After their exile, Mowbray descends into spite and self-pity, while Bolingbroke accepts his sentence with noble stoicism.
2: Your will be done, this must my comfort be. That sun that warms you here shall shine on me, and those his golden beams to you here lent shall point on me and gild my banishment.
0: Bolingbroke even proves himself selfless, urging Thomas Mowbray to confess his treason so he does not spend exile with, quote, the clogging burden of a guilty soul, end quote. Bolingbroke's heroism is further emphasized by his Confederates, most of whom we never see. Their various betrayals of Richard are but the work of a moment, and the speed in which this rebellion happens should be all we need to understand that Bolingbroke has become the great new hope. In the span of a second act, the nobles flock to him, bringing along eight tall ships and 3,000 men of war. Bolingbroke inspires nobility. Clearly, people like him, despite what Harold Bloom has to say. Shakespeare's masterstroke comes at the end of the play, when Bolingbroke is faced with a cousin who is implicated in treason, a virtual echo of the play's opening scene. When his cousin Amorel is caught with an incriminating letter, Amarel's parents drag him before Bolingbroke and beg for forgiveness. Rather than haul them all before the court, as Richard II did, Bolingbroke, Shows mercy.
2: Good aunt, stand up. I do not sue to stand.
1: Pardon is all the suit I have in hand. I
2: pardon him as God shall pardon me.
1: Oh, happy vantage of a kneeling knee. Yet am I sick for fear. Speak it again. Twice saying pardon doth not pardon twain, but makes one pardon strong. With all my
2: heart, I pardon him. A god on earth thou art.
0: Later, he will sentence some traitors to death, but he will also attempt to restore the exiled Thomas Mowbray, and will also exile the man who murdered Richard II, even though he knows this murder has cost him something dear.
2: Here in all breathless lies the mightiest of thy greatest enemies, Richard of Bordeaux, by me hither brought. Exton, I thank thee not, for thou hast wrought
0: a deed of slander with thy fatal hand. Finally, towards the end of the play, Bolingbroke also shows parental concern for his son. Can no man tell me of my unthrifty son? Tis full three months since I did see him last, if any
2: plague hang over us, tis he. I would to God, my lord, he might be found. Inquire at London, monks the taverns there, for there, they say, he daily doth frequent with unrestrained loose companions. Even such, they say, as stand in narrow lanes and beat our watch and rob our passengers, which he, young wanton and effeminate boy, takes
0: on the point of honour to support so dissolute a crew. That son, of course, is the future Henry V, now the wastrel Hal, who was already gallivanting in London with his band of rogues. That Shakespeare inserts this tiny speech at the end of Richard II shows he was probably plotting Henry IV for here the groundwork is being laid. However, it is equally possible that this was merely a bit of fan service, since his audience would have known exactly who Henry IV's unthrifty son was. Regardless, the moment is another chance for us to contrast Bolingbroke with Richard. Richard is childless and shows more affection for his cohorts than he does for his own Queen who is the only family he appears to have he redeems himself with this Queen a little towards the end but that scene is a tragic one for until then Richard has not seemed to care about her at all so either his protests of love are false or and I think this to be more likely he is only realizing how much he truly cares for her doubly divorced "'Bad man, you violate a twofold marriage, "'twixt
3: my crown and me, "'and then betwixt me and my married wife. "'Let me unkiss the oath twixt thee and me. "'And yet not so, for with a kiss t'was made. "'Part us, Northumberland. "'I towards the north, "'where shivering cold and sickness pines the clime, "'my wife to France. "'From whence set forth in pomp "'she came adorned hither like sweet May.' Sent back like hallow mass, or shortest of day.
1: And must we be divided? Must we part?
3: Ay, hand from hand, my love, and heart from heart.
1: Banish us both, and send the king with me.
3: That were some love, but little policy.
1: Then whither he goes, thither let me go.
3: So too, together weeping, make one woe. Weep thou for me in France. I for thee here,
0: better far off
3: than near, be near the near.
0: The scene is notable both for Richard's protests of love and for the inclusion of one of the few women in a play which is visibly short on female characters. The only other figure of note is the Duchess of York, who pleads for her son and helps save his life. Now, this lack of female characters is often a problem with the histories. Henry IV will suffer a similar problem, as we shall see, and so will Henry V. And in several productions of Richard II that I've seen, directors have either incorporated the Queen as a silent character who was on stage from the very start, or engaged in a little gender cross-casting. Purist that I am, I still think this is the way to go with Shakespeare as we continue to produce him in the 21st century. Colorblind and genderblind casting should be the norm, as long as it doesn't interfere with the plot. You will run into problems in Othello if you're too blind with the colorblind casting, but in Richard II, neither gender or race is really on the table, and if some candy director wanted to cast female-identifying actors or people of color in the roles of all those nobles, or even as Richard or Bolingbroke, you won't hear any objections from me. I'll be happy that the play is getting produced at all. Bolingbroke has no soliloquies and very few moments of self-reflection, but Richard, who begins the play Every Inch the Terrible King, is allowed to become more human and more humane as the play progresses. Being deposed becomes him. Step by step, he is stripped of his support system, his toadies, his lords, his crown, his wife, and finally his freedom when he is locked in the Tower of London. And yet through it all, he slowly wins our sympathies, especially in the stellar coronation scene, which, as I've said, is one of the finest things Shakespeare ever wrote. While dramatic in its own right, it also sets up the War of the Roses, for this is the moment when all the battle lines are drawn. As he did with all those plays about Henry VI, Shakespeare returns to that favourite trope of his, the prophecy that tells the characters a future the audience knows will come true. The Bishop of Carlisle makes his all-too-accurate prediction of what will happen if Henry Bolingbroke seizes the crown.
2: My lord of Hereford here, whom you call king, is a foul traitor to proud Hereford's king. And if you crown him, let me prophesy, the blood of English shall manure the ground and future ages groan for this foul act peace shall go sleep with Turks and infidels and in this seat of peace tumultuous Wars shall kin with kin and kind with kind confound disorder horror fear and mutiny shall here inhabit and this land be called the field of Golgotha and dead men's
0: skull. The concept of divine right was the foundation of the monarchy, the king was servant only to God. The coronation of Henry IV corrupts this ideal by making the king servant to parliament and the whims of the nobility. The struggle of these two philosophies, divine right of kings versus kings that are approved by the people, forms the basis of the entire Henriad, and it is here that it gets its start. Now, after the prophecy, Richard is summoned before the court to formally renounce the crown. It is a humiliation that he almost cannot endure. Until now, we have seen Richard be capricious and Bolingbroke be our thundering hero. Here, Shakespeare turns all that on his head. Richard comes across as the victim, while Bolingbroke comes across as being more than a little cruel. He is a man not content to merely take the crown, he wants to humiliate his cousin and former friend too.
2: To do what service am I sent for hither?
0: To do that
2: office of thine own goodwill, which tired Majesty did make thee offer, the resignation of thy state and crown to Henry Bolingbroke. Give me the crown. Here, cousin.
1: Seize the crown. On this side, my hand, and on that side, yours. Now is this golden crown like a deep well that owes two buckets filling one another. The emptier ever dancing in the air, the other down unseen and full of water. That bucket down and full of tears am I, drinking my griefs, whilst you mount up
2: on high. I thought you had been willing to resign. My crown I am, but still my griefs are mine.
0: Throughout the play, Richard continues to reveal more and more insight. Is it any wonder he gets philosophical as he muses on the nature of identity and kingship in his stellar final speech? Now, I'm tempted to play the entire thing, for it's an exquisite bit of poetry. But less is more, and perhaps it's better to whet your appetite so you'll have an excuse to go out and see the play for yourself.
1: Thus play I in one person many people, and none contented. Sometimes am I king, then treasons make me wish myself a beggar, and so I am. Then crushing penury persuades me I was better when a king, then am I kinged again, and by and by think that I am unkinged by Bolingbroke, and straight am nothing. But whate'er I be, no I, Now any man that but man is with nothing shall be pleased till he be eased with being nothing.
0: Right after this speech, Richard is murdered, and it is here we find the origins of the various conspiracies that will plague Henry IV and his descendants. All seven of the subsequent plays in the Henriette will return to this murder again and again, which is why that, in addition to being a remarkable piece of theatre in its own terms, Richard II is also one of the most important plays in the Henriette. The question of whether Henry Bolingbroke stole the crown or obtained it legally is one which every character in the Henriad has to try to answer for themselves. Admittedly, this is the greatest challenge for those who stage Richard II. It is essentially a three-hour setup with a cliffhanger that doesn't get resolved until the next chapter. But you could say the same thing about The Fellowship of the Ring, Star Wars, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, or any other initial entry in your favorite multi-chapter serial. Richard III is all too often performed in isolation, which is why so many think of it as a tale of ambition when it in fact is a story of revenge. Similarly, the two Henry IV plays and Henry V become stories of attempted redemption when viewed in relation to Richard II. Bolingbroke and his son are seeking forgiveness for what was done to Richard at the end of this play. Richard II is a challenging play, but it is almost always a rewarding one. That the play is unpopular when compared to the traditional stars of Shakespeare's canon actually works to its benefit. People who come to it for the first time will be pleasantly surprised. Richard II is one of the powerhouses in Shakespeare's arsenal, and even if you have no interest in the rest of the Henriad, it remains a moving and lyrical meditation on power, kingship, and regret. Richard's self-realization of what has happened to him is moving to watch, and when he fights for his life at the end of the play, I am always convinced that had he lived and been restored, he might have been a much better monarch than ever before. Sadly, history, and Shakespeare, never gives him the chance, and this is what makes the play so bittersweet. Richard is given the experience he needs to be a better king, right at the moment, when it can't ever help him at all. Now comes the part of the show where I talk about film versions of the play I've discussed. If I could, I'd give you a time machine and have you travel back to 2011 when Eddie Redmayne starred in a production of Richard II at the Donmar Warehouse in the West End. I paid £7 for standing room only and I never got tired once. It still remains the finest production of Richard II that I have ever seen. But theatre is ephemeral and that particular production, to the best of my knowledge, was never recorded for public consumption. Fortunately, there are several versions which are readily at hand. The most accessible is probably the very first episode of The Hollow Crown, a show that I've discussed during my talks on Henry VI. The Hollow Crown's first efforts were with Richard II and Henry IV, and here Ben Wishaw takes on the title role. It's a magnificent episode and features a great cameo by Patrick Stewart as old John of Gaunt, who delivers that famed speech about how wonderful England is.
3: This royal throne of kings? this sceptred isle, this earth of majesty, this seat of Mars, this other Eden, demi-paradise, this fortress built by nature for herself against infection and The Hand of War, this happy breed of men, this little world, (laughs) this precious stone set in the Silver Sea, which serves it in the office of a wall, or as a moat, defensive to a house against the envy of less happier lands.
0: The play, of course, has been edited for television in The Hollow Crown, as it was for The Age of Kings, that other BBC series from the 1960s that I've discussed, and while I will watch these if I want a quick Richard II fix, I love the play too much to ever recommend a production that cuts down the text. For the more complete version, then, I'm turning to a 2013 production by The Royal Shakespeare Company, available on DVD, and starring the actor David Tennant. Aside from being much closer to the original text, this production does a magnificent job playing up Richard's love of pomp and ceremony, and also showing his transformation from capricious king to sympathetic victim. David Tennant is electric in the title role, and if you weren't a fan of him before, you will be now. This production is very smart because it opens with an almost funeral air. Part of the backstory of the entire play is that Richard sanctioned the murder of his uncle, the Duke of Gloucester. At the beginning of this production, then, there is a funeral that has been going on, That Richard is engaged in all the pomp and ceremony that goes with pretending to be in grief. This is one of the ways in which the production highlights Richard II, beginning the play by giving you a character you don't particularly like, and then making you care for him by the time he dies two and a half hours later. It was directed by Gregory Doran and is widely available on DVD. Well, that's it for Richard II. Next up, the most famous love story of all time would be a lot better if the lovers weren't so dull. It's Romeo and Juliet. If you like the show, please subscribe, rate, and review it in the iTunes store. For more information about the things I've discussed, you can always visit the show page at www.joelfishbane.net slash And hey, while you're there, why not check out the other things I do with my time, including information about how to get your hands on my novel, The Thunder of Giants, a book about two eight-foot-tall women who are struggling to live in a world that's too small to contain them. It's now available from St. Martin's Press. Thanks for listening to Shakespeare Unbard, 10 place down. 28 to go will shakespeare as a play let's go and cough through it